Traduction. Translation. Traduction. Translator's note. Welcome to Translator's Note and greetings from Iowa City. I'm Abby Ryder-Huth. And I'm Julia Conrad. And today we'll be focusing especially on the translation of place and in this case, especially cities. Um, We haven't really mentioned the pandemic on the podcast very much yet, but so many translators and readers of translations are also travelers. And this year has been particularly hard for those separated from homes and family in other countries or at new places that we want to explore Translation really makes clear how much language is connected to place, whether that's a matter of national identity or local inflection and slang or even the rhythm of speech. Yeah, yeah. I think one of the great things about translation is that it's a way of being almost in two places at once because reading in another language can really hold so much feeling of being somewhere specific. Um, Yeah, one of the pieces we're looking at today is a short story from Hong Kong which is famous as a kind of food heaven. (laughs) The story made me really, really hungry. And it's also such a fun opportunity to talk more about food and especially translating food names. I always find it funny because in Chinese restaurants in Italy, um, on menus, dumplings get translated into Italian as tortellini and lo mein gets translated as spaghetti. Um, just like a, every every culture has a different translation uh, practice. And then later in the episode, I interviewed the Iranian-American writer and translator Pupe Misagi about her recent novel, Translating House One. And we talked about how translating influences her writing in English about Tehran and her practice as a translator between Persian and English. The interviews and audio on the show today are coming from a particularly wide array of places. They were recorded in Iowa City and New York and Michigan and Milan and Hong Kong. Tehran comes up quite a lot too. But before we get there, we will hear from translator Jennifer Feely. Jennifer is an NEA fellow and winner of the Lucian Strick Award for Asian Translation. And she agreed to take me on a little close reading tour looking in detail at a few passages from a short story she translated in 2020 called Patient by the Hong Kong writer Wang Yi. Patient is a story about the pandemic, but most of all it's a love story for a person, for the city of Hong Kong, and also for the city's food, which includes buttered pineapple buns. To get us ready, we have a special dispatch. Hello, greetings from Hong Kong. I'm Wang Yi, and I am the author of the short story Patient. Um, in Chinese, the title is Hang Gao Yan Noi. To me, Hong Kongers are a, a people that really, really like to eat, to a point where um, we often greet each other by saying, which literally translates to, have you eaten yet? Um, it's not just a stand-in for how are you or hello, it could genuinely turn into an invitation to share a meal in the conversation. We connect with each other through food, and through that, we like to share our culture and the things we like to eat with everyone around the world. I talked to Jennifer Feely about translating patient. 
The story is told in second person. It's about a you who goes home to Hong Kong from Australia during the pandemic. But per government rules, she must quarantine for two weeks in a hotel. And so while she's quarantining, she's thinking about all of the delicious foods she will be able to eat when she gets out. And she's thinking about her friend, who is the she or the her in the story. And it's a love story, but it's a love story that's really about longing because from what we can tell, they are not actually a romantic couple. So as she's dreaming about all these wonderful foods she wants to eat, she's also thinking about the person. Oh, that's so beautiful. So you you picked out a couple, couple little passages for us to look at more closely. Yes. Um, so the first section I'll read is uh, when the you is imagining returning to Hong Kong from Australia after her graduation. Um, So here it goes from the story. I'll make it through graduation and then I'll come back to Hong Kong and we'll sweep street, hitting up all the good food places. I'm going to eat fried stuffed three treasures, mango pomelo sago, buttered pineapple buns and rice noodle rolls with sweet sauce. You said. Here's Wang Yi reading the same thing. 我要活下来，参加毕业礼，然后回港和你一起扫街。我要吃煎酿三宝、杨枝甘露、菠萝油和甜酱肠粉。你说。Uh, and then later in the story, the Yu is、uh, again envisioning all these foods that she's going to eat. Uh, and she connects them to the her in the story. Over and over, you've imagined how after coming back to Hong Kong, you'll chow down on all the foods you've missed, which cha chan tongs and cart noodle shops you'll eat at, how you'll cling to her despite everything and not let go, telling her how much you've missed her, holding her and breathing deeply. But now that the outbreak has hit, Your longing can only be prolonged. Here's Wang Yi again. 你多次想象回港以后要怎样大口大口地吃下所有想念的食物，要去哪几间茶餐厅、车仔面，要怎样不顾一切地抱紧他不放，告诉他你有多想念他，抱住他深深地呼吸。然而疫情一袭来，你的思念。This piece in particular, sometimes it reads like a long prose poem to me, because she has very long sentences, and it is normal for works written in Chinese to have very long sentences because punctuation functions differently. But in this case, they felt really long, and it felt like when. Possible that I needed to retain the length of these sentences because there was a certain rhythm to them.、Uh, and Wang Yi is known for also writing a lot in Cantonese.、Uh, so I'm not sure、uh, if it, everyone is aware of this, but when we talk about the language of Chinese, there really is no language that's just Chinese.、Uh, what happens is that most writers write in something called standard written Chinese. Which is based on the grammar and vocabulary of Mandarin,、uh, and this means that 
writers who write in what we call Chinese all over the world are able to read each other's works. But sometimes writers want to inflect their work with more of a local feeling. So you might have writers from Shanghai who add some Shanghainese to their work or in Taiwan who add some Taiwanese. And there are some Hong Kong authors who will add Cantonese into their work. Some will even exclusively write in Cantonese. Um, and Wang Yi usually uses Cantonese for dialogue or for the character's interior monologues. And this gives the work a very strong local feeling because if a reader who does not know Cantonese but can read standard written Chinese looks at the story, it's going to seem a bit foreign to them. They probably won't be able to understand everything. And so there is a bit of a rupture there. That's so interesting. I wonder, let's go back to the first sentence you read. Could you walk me through this? Sure, of course. When I was translating this story, as well as other works by her, I had to think about how can I bring Cantonese into my translation? How can I make this seem different than a work that is translated from just plain old standard written Chinese or that's closer to Mandarin, let's say a work from the mainland? Um, and then I also had to deal with all of these food references. And as it turned out, they sort of worked together. Uh, because what I realized, the function of her use of Cantonese and of all of these references is that it makes it very much a local piece about Hong Kong. And so even though I'm translating into English and maybe the Cantonese-ness disappears, there are other ways I can bring in, uh, I, I can replicate the function of what the Cantonese is doing in terms of uh, imbuing it with the local flavor. And at times, perhaps I can bring some estrangement into English that will make English readers pause. So for example, um, I would say the first thing is where, um, this is the you she's thinking in her mind. So she's thinking that she's gonna last in Australia through graduation. And she says, and then I'll come back to Hong Kong and we'll sweep street, hitting up all the good food places. So this term sweep street is Hong Kong slang. Uh, for going out and eating food from various food stalls and restaurants. So kind of like a pub crawl, but for food. So you would go to different, different food places that specialize in a specific kind of dish or snack. And when Wang Yi gave me the story, she had a note about this, just describing what this term was. And I was thinking about how to translate it because it literally says sweep street. So one option would have been to romanize it uh, and just transliterate it uh, from Cantonese, something like sogai, and then add a gloss. And I, or I could have done sweeping the street or street sweeping. And I had a couple of concerns. One is I didn't want readers to think that they're talking about actual street cleaning. And I was really worried about that. And I wasn't sure how to make this sound smooth in English. Um, as it so happened, um, unrelated to translating this story, I had been chatting online with a young Hong Kong poet named Rachel Liang, who writes in English. Uh, she's a bilingual poet. And we were talking about something else. And then I mentioned this story and how I was wrestling with this term. And she said, oh, my friends and I, who are bilingual, we just call it sweep street. 
And I said, sweep street, not sweeping the street. No, she said, just sweep street. And so she said in English, we'll say, let's go sweep street. And I liked that. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to go with sweep street because this is how Hong Kong bilingual speakers would say it in English. And I felt it really fit the story because the U has been studying in Australia. So she's clearly uh, at least bilingual, um, if not able to speak other languages. And even if it seemed a little bit unidiomatic to say American English readers, I thought that's okay because this is the point where I can insert something that is local to Hong Kong that might make some readers stumble. But that's also what the Cantonese is going to do to readers who don't know Cantonese when they're reading it in Chinese. And it wasn't an attempt at foreignness. It was just an attempt actually to bring a little bit of Hong Kong into English, um, because I think more and more when people are talking about translation, we're realizing we shouldn't just be translating for the white American English reader. And it also shows actually why we need translators of various backgrounds, because had I not chatted with Rachel about this, I probably wouldn't have come up with Sweep Street. Um, and then after that, I have this sentence, I'm going to eat fried stuffed three treasures, mango pomelo sago, buttered pineapple buns, and rice noodle rolls with sweet sauce. So this first dish, fried stuffed three treasures, I decided to go with this very literal translation. Knowing that English readers who don't know anything about Cantonese food are, gonna not, are, are not going to have any idea what this is. And I figure if the readers really want to know what this is, they can go do their own internet search. And for the next dish, mango pamelo sago, I went with how it's usually referred to on menus uh, in Hong Kong, knowing that some readers are not gonna know what this is. Um, I think mango is very familiar. Pamelo will be familiar to some people, not others. Sago is not really something we see a lot uh, in, in North America, the kind of starch. Um, but again, I figure that readers can look this up if they're so inclined. And the next one is buttered pineapple buns. Seems really straightforward, but in fact, there is no pineapple involved. It's just buns that are baked, but they have a, they're scored with like a pineapple shape on top. And then there's a pat of butter put in between. But again, if readers don't know exactly what it is and they want to know, I figure they can look. So for these first three, I translated them rather literally. And then the fourth one, the rice noodle rolls with sweet sauce, I was debating because sometimes this dish is called chong fun, which is just the romanization or transliteration of, of the Chinese name. And the reason I went with rice noodle rolls is because of the sweet sauce. Um, since we already had this literal description from the sweet sauce, I just decided to keep the rest of it literal here. So that was the strategy uh, with this sentence. Um, but then in the second passage I did, that I read, I decided to go with a little bit of a different strategy for some of them. So uh, we get to this word, cha uh, chan tongs. And if I were to try to translate it into English, it might be Hong Kong style cafe. It's a very specific kind of restaurant. I did not want to call it Hong Kong style cafe for a couple of reasons, most notably that they're in Hong Kong. So no one in Hong Kong is going to say, let's go to a Hong Kong style cafe. That sounds very strange. 
Um, and then the second reason is that Cha Chan Tong itself actually has a Wikipedia page in English. And we do have these kinds of restaurants in North America now, uh, especially in San Francisco and places that have large Cantonese populations. And I decided that there really is no good English equivalent for Cha Chan Tong. And that this is an opportunity for readers to learn more uh, about what is this strange word. Or if they don't want to learn what it is, they can just gloss over it. Right, right. I have to say, this is my first time coming across the word cha chan tong. And I'm so glad to know about it now through this piece. Um, something I really loved about these, about this piece and these passages is there's such a really intimate and also colloquial tone that it feels really, you feel really close, I think, to this speaker and then, and also to Hong Kong. Yeah, so I think a lot of it just happened intuitively, uh, just because of the style of her writing. And as I mentioned, she uses a lot of Cantonese. And I think that uh, brings a sense of colloquial, of colloquialism to her work. So sort of naturally, I've tried to bring that into the English by making some of the English more colloquial. But some of it just happens serendipitously. So there's this phrase that in English is, your longing can only be prolonged. Yeah, I wanted to ask about that. I really like that. I'm glad you like it. I wasn't sure if repeating long would be irritating to readers or not. So if we look at a literal translation of the English, it would be your longing or your yearning, or this word can also mean to miss. Um, and so your yearning, your longing, your sense of missing someone can only continue to be prolonged or extended. So it's actually a very literal translation. And I, I could have gone with your yearning can only be prolonged, but your longing can only be prolonged just felt right. And it added to the ache that runs through this story, this really strong sense of longing for food and for place and for the person, for the her, that the you can't wait to see, you know, in the flesh. That's really beautiful. This is going a little slightly different direction. Um, can you say something a little bit about how food and and food names are are working for the story overall? Yes. Um so food is really important, I think, in general to Hong Kongers. Um, I, I mean, I believe that people everywhere are very proud of their food, but it seems that in Hong Kong, food is really like, it, it takes center stage. Um, and for Wong Yi in particular, she loves writing about food. So this is not the only piece um, that I've translated by her where she does talk about these various foods. Um, and I'd like to actually read a quote from an essay that I translated by Wang Yi that's called, Can We Say Our Hometown Is... Dot, dot, dot. So she writes, You, who've been away from Hong Kong for more than 10 years, said that over time, you've forgotten the pronunciation and appearance of a number of Chinese characters. But the memories of our shared homeland aren't only recorded in language, but also on taste buds. And I love this quote, this idea that the memories of our shared homeland 
aren't only recorded in language, but also on taste buds. Oh, I love that. It gets back almost to the same idea of pronunciation for me too, that this this whole world of, of home and this sense of Hong Kong is coming through through the tongue, you know, through taste and also through how how words sound. Exactly. And how even if your tongue forgets the language, it still remembers the taste. I think that's very powerful. Patient was published on Asymptote's blog. We've linked to it and to the original. It's part of Wang Yi's upcoming collection in Chinese called Ways to Love in a Crowded City. Incidentally, Wang Yi also hosts a radio show on RTHK, that's Radio Television Hong Kong, called Book Review. It's been on air for 38 years, showcasing work by Hong Kong writers both established and more up-and-coming. We've linked to that too. Chinese translators especially, please take note. We'll take a quick break, but first, a note. If you ever do get the chance to come to Hong Kong, do try out all the foods, do read a lot more of our literature, and perhaps make a few friends. We'll surprise you with how much we actually like to eat and how how much fun it is, really, to read the stories that um, the people of this incredible city write. This is Translator's Note. Next up, Julia Conrad in Milan talks to Pupe Misagi in New York about translating Tehran. Pupe Misagi is a writer and translator into and out of Persian and Asymptote's Iran editor-at-large. Her debut novel, Translating House One, was published by Coffee House Press in 2020. The novel takes place in the aftermath of the contested 2009 election in Iran of Mahmoud Ahmadinejad and the protests that followed. The novel is hybrid in form. It's about a protagonist searching for public statues that begin to go missing in Tehran, but also includes different layers, including portraits of the dead linked to state violence, dreams, theory, and questions addressing the you of an English-speaking readership. It's a sensitive and experimental novel, and sometimes people talk about books like that as writer's novels, but I'd say that Translating House One is really a translator's novel in its many creative approaches to translating Tehran into English in this case. One of the immediately striking things about the book is that some of the text goes from right to left. I asked Pupe to talk about other moments where the Persian language was present in the text. So... The city layer where the woman is uh, moving around Tehran, um, you read it from left to right, but it is right aligned. So there's like that um, disrupture and like discomfort of like something is off with this page. Um, other elements of Persian, I think, like, I mean, I have been told that the rhythm of the sentences doesn't necessarily read like, like standard English, um, whatever that is but I have like long sentences that are more poetic prose rather than prose prose. Um, so that might be like something else that's coming from Persian. And also because I'm writing in my second language, there are words that I just put in the narrative and then I realized they didn't really exist in English, but now they are words that exist in my book. So one example of that is like, 
I think I use in a sentence like the moon um, fooling, like as like becoming full moon, I'm using it as a verb. Like that's not how it's used in English, but then I love that and I just kept it. Um, yeah, so I think like there's like that distance with not being like a native speaker of English that allows for some creativity. And then the other way it is coming through is in the meta layer of the book, there's a lot of discussion about what it means to write in a second language for an audience that is not from this place, that has not shared the history that the book is dealing with. And what does that mean for the ethical choices of the narrative and um, the complicated history between Iran and the U.S.? Yeah, I was wondering about the the choice to write in English and also the question of audience. Did you ever consider writing it in Persian and then translating it yourself? I never thought about writing it in Persian because I don't do my creative work in Persian. Um, but now, like, I'm thinking now that it exists in English, even if it's, like, because it has a specific readership, it has a specific audience. So even if it's moving to a different language or if it ever is going back to Persian, it has to be rewritten rather than translated because the audience is specific in the converse, like to the conversations happening in the meta layer of the book. So it would be another creative project or it would be like an experimental translation that would have to do like some weird things for it to work. Well, it, it makes me think of Borges as the idea that each translation is just a new version of a book. And it's especially exciting to think about a book that is so engaged with questions of audience and place to become a new creative work in a, a new format while also being a translation of the same work. Yeah. And I would imagine like one of the things that, for example, I think about, like if this is going back into Persian, and I, I still say like going back because even if it's written in English, I think the origins of it exist in my Persian world. So if it's going back, for example, like the painful history that the book discusses, right? the meta layer would have to talk about that in a different way rather than the, right now the audience of the book is distant from that pain. But for the Iranian reader, that pain is so close that history has been experienced, has been lived through. So the questions and the theories would be kind of different. Like it would be more of an addressing of a past that we have experienced in our bodies. Yeah, because I was thinking of how one of the questions I think that you're thinking about is like, how do you um, get a reader to sit with so much trauma? But it's different when there's a different level of distance. And I mean, even language can sometimes play into that. Like, like writing in English can create a level of distance that makes something manageable. Yeah. So I... I'm guessing like I'm too close and too inside the book to be able to actually just do like a translation, you know, like I would want to just like bring everything down and just rebuild it again if I'm doing it myself, right? Mm -hmm. Kind of adjacently, I was wondering if you could talk about your research process for the book. 
if translation or how translation played into that? Because you use such a wide variety of sources and texts from so many different cultures. The most important aspect of, if I would call it like academic research or investigative research for the book, was based on translation because for the part that I call the part about the corpses, um, the information mainly came from um, Iranian sources. So the language I was reading in was Persian. So that's one type of translation that was happening. The other thing was I was watching a lot of videos from the time that the book is dealing with. So I was translating the visuals into text. So that was another layer. Or I was listening to audio of like family members or um, journalists covering the murders. And that was again like happening in Persian, but again like audio Persian translated into English text, written text. So that was another layer of translation. And then to think about how all of that could be combined together into a narrative. So that was also happening. Um, and then I would say like, going from the world of dreams into like written text is also a translation because the world of dreams is it lives with with its own logic right and whatever we are <clears throat> remembering or however we are narrating them is just translation it's, it's like so far away from the reality of it right we don't have even access to it um so there's that but also like again like writing down my dreams that notebook exists in both English and Persian. So some of them I had to translate into English before I could work with for the book. And then finally to translate that text into these images. And I call that also translation. I love what you said about like this spectrum of translation. That's not just you know, the traditional one-to-one language, but um, thinking between senses and media and also genre and tradition um do you see translation as as that more holistic thing or is that something that you thought of before you started working on the book um it's interesting because when i work on translation projects or what i have worked so far on it's more like traditional translation right i have a book and i just create another book in a different language based on that text <clears throat> but when it comes to writing because i live in two different languages two different cultures two different traditions and have lived in different places i feel like that's where this more broad spectrum of translation comes into play for me. So in a way, yes, like, I guess I became more aware of all these possibilities through writing my own book. And now I'm interested in like, how would you work with another person's work and expand what we mean by translation, right? What we now call like more experimental translation, right? Yeah, no, I, I love that because I, I feel like this book made me think about the possibilities of translation that are not, like, that happen behind the scenes, um, whether it's translating the politics or the 
trauma that happened in one country to a country where there's a really fraught connection <laughs> between the two. Just as you were saying, the translation of research, which is a huge part, I think, of so many writers' processes. And I just, it made me think about the limitations of, of not using translation in research. I would say even like the limitation of like confining yourself to one genre, right? If I were like, oh, I'm not supposed to use theory in my novel, or I'm not supposed to use nonfiction in my fictional narrative, right? I don't even know how to do that kind of work anymore, or um, maybe I'm not interested in it. I enjoy reading books that do that, right? Just like a straightforward narrative um, when they do it well. But I guess like for me, it's more like language is a material like that I can work with and however that material can help me, I'm just going to do that. If I need to do it in a way that is not understandable to me while I'm working on it, that's fine, right? And then I'm just going to think how it can be packaged and presented. <laughs> I love that. It, well, it makes me think about foreignization and domestication and, and how in the more traditional translations, certain translators can give themselves more or less permission to play with language, whether that's bringing a word or a concept or rhythm more consciously into English versus domesticating, which is just having a more straightforward narrative. Right. Or even like having the sentence structures feel more like English sentence structures or, right, as you say, like domesticating it so it's like easier for the reader to read. But like thinking about rhythm, I, like, I think like it's not just like being like having Persian language, but also I have been more and more aware about how each place has its own rhythms, right? Like if I'm writing a book about that is set, for example, in Denver, like the rhythm of Denver is so different from the rhythm of New York City, right? So the narratives should not have the same embodied experience, right? The same exact story if it's set in one place versus another place. I'm very much interested in being able to translate the rhythms of the city into the narrative. Right. So like that was like one of the things I attempted with the book. Like if, for example, my protagonist, like the woman, if she was, for example, in a bus, I was trying to see how my sentences would imitate how one's body feels in a bus in a crowded city. Or if she is, for example, with friends drinking around the table, it would be a completely different rhythm, right? So how does that translate into the rhythm of the sentences? I've often thought about like the this idea of a shadow language that's when you're translating, you're trying to kind of create the feeling or the sense of the language that you're translating from. But I love that you say like, it's much more specific than that. It's also like the place. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, I wanted to kind of switch gears and, and ask you about your more straightforward translations <laughs> and specifically how, how do you choose projects and think about projects, especially in the context of the relationship between the U.S. and Iran? Like my main reason for working on anything has been like, 
I've really enjoyed reading this and I want to share this. And within that, there is always like that awareness of the politics of the work. Like I'm not interested in translating a book that I'm so sure, for example, that it will sell well in the US, but it has like so many problematic um, politics behind it. And I guess like in that sense, I'm more drawn to stories that show much, a much more complicated narrative. Always I'm interested in like complicated stories, right? Not like taking sides or like the gray picture, always the gray picture. Yeah. In the, so in the case of the, the book that will, you know, will sell well, but is not the book that you would take on. I mean, it might actually sell well, but that's like, you know, like there are some parameters, right? For example, like the woman who has been victimized like by the Islamic culture. If that's the only thing happening in the book, I'm not interested in that narrative. It might be part of the reality of like the story, right? But if that's the only thing that's pulling the story through, right, I'm not interested in that story. The humanity in the work is very important for me. And whether I can get close to that humanity or not, whether I want to share that humanity or not. Do you find that your two translation practices have the same techniques? Is it mostly the same or? Mostly the same, um, I would say. Um, They feel different, but the like practical process is the same. When I translate into English, if I don't know something, I always like immediately tell myself, okay, so this is my second language. So I might not be aware of the nuances of like these choices. So I should check with someone, for example, right? When I'm translating into Persian, my reaction to like my mental reaction to myself is, this is my first language oh my God, I don't know how to translate this, right? So it's immediately like, even though I speak this language, right, there are still limits to this first language of mine, right? Rather than I should have learned it. I'm like, oh, I, so the realization of that lack is different. I, I, I'm just thinking about what you said about like your language environment and, and how that affects how words come to you. The question of first or second language can almost be irrelevant, I think, sometimes, because it's sort of like, where is the context where a translation of a word is going to come to you the quickest? Or do you have the most energy or access for coming up with solutions in the target language? And I would even say, like, sometimes, like, the cultural... Um, knowledge is one part of it the cultural intimacy is one part of it it's still like so hard like I can't translate like jokes still right so like there's so much that's for me in English language is still foreign right but even that is relative right even like changing groups shifts our access to language right among friends you have shared languages right but if you go for example from one neighborhood to a different neighborhood, from one city to another city, the nuances of language change, right? So you might not have access to those nuances. I think like sometimes as a non-native speaker, you have some access to the language that the native speaker might not have that access, right? So it's just different abilities rather than like one has a stronger ability, one has a less ability, right? I have seen like some people have made 
this comment of like, if you're a non-native speaker, you should not speak into that language, right? You should only translate into your first language. And I think that's like so problematic. Yeah, and I, I mean, my relationship with English grammar, for example, English is my first language, but I never formally studied grammar. So there's, there's just a level of ignorance to my, my writing and my approach. And I think sometimes like someone who is maybe more confident about their first language, they think that they know everything, or as you were saying, when you weren't able to translate something into Persian, how there's this pang and you're like, oh no. Um, I think that can actually be a hindrance in some ways because you might not be thinking of these creative solutions or you might have a kind of hubris to, to your translations. I've like mentioned this, um, I don't know if I've told you this um, before, but I think like writing in English was so liberating to me because I didn't have any expectations for myself, right? I always thought this is my second language. I just love learning it so much. And the writing process was part of that learning process. And whenever like I didn't know something, again, like that creativity, right? Or also like I'm a nobody in this language. So whatever I do, it's going to be fine, right? So it makes it more playful. There isn't that rigidity of I should know this language, right? There's like, I don't know this language, right? So I can do what I can do. I don't know like if moving forward, I would have the same, the same comfort with it because now I have set a standard for myself, right? I was able to do this before. Can I do that? At least like do that in my next project, right? Or I have like at least like, a more established relationship with um, language, or I wouldn't say language, with the performance of language. And I try to just like pull myself out of it again and say again, like no expectations, this is just my material and whatever I can do with this material at this moment, it's gonna be fine. Translator's Note is made by me, Abby Ryderhuth, and by Julia Conrad. We are part of Exchange's Journal of Literary Translation. A huge thank you again to our guests today, Jennifer Feely, Pupe Masagi, and Wang Yi. You can find out more about them and their work at exchanges.uiowa.edu. Our theme music is by Nate Repaz, and you can see all the music we use on our website. We are very grateful as ever to Arona, Ji, and Jan Stein, our fearless leaders at the MFA Program in Literary Translation, to Natasha Durovikova with the International Writers Program, and to the University of Iowa Division of World Languages, Literatures, and Cultures. Also special thanks to Mallory Truckenmiller-Sailor and Allison Stickley. Thank you for listening to Translator's Note. Um, quick, before we go, did you know that the University of Iowa is about to start the country's very first freestanding Bachelor of Arts program in literary translation? Tell a teenager today. Translator's Note. Translator's Note.